Okay, welcome to another bonus episode of History and Film. We are super excited to talk about this film that, you know, isn't particularly historical, but it's set in the Old West, and Logan and I both just absolutely love it. It is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the 2018 Netflix film. It's kind of hard to place exactly because this isn't a traditional film. It's basically a series of six short films that they put together as an anthology, but it is very much a, a film. I even saw an article just now saying how some people assumed that maybe this was originally meant for television, but the Coen brothers are like, uh, no, we don't do TV. This was a movie in our minds from the beginning. Even if they had a separate short films that they then put together into a film, they were never thinking TV for this. Yeah, I saw a uh, an interview with Tim Blake Nelson where he was talking about how this movie, what, they were trying to get it made for like... Mm. almost 20 years oh wow like basically okay. they, they approached him in like the early 2000s with this buster scruggs character nice and and the you know the general idea for that story but then it was you know 15 years later that the movie actually comes out yeah yeah when they did say the kind of i mean it's hard to get studio money for this traditionally so netflix was kind of the perfect partner yeah, for them, the the Coen brothers are big theater guys, but they understood that like, yeah, Netflix makes sense for this, and we're cool with that. Right. This was also people may have heard us talk about this movie before, if they're listeners of Track Nerds, because this was my number ten in my top ten movies of the 2010s. I was say of the decade, it's probably t- I was gonna say probably a lot higher on that particular year, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a good one. I don't keep track like you oh, do gotcha. of yeah, my yeah, top yeah. movies of the year but if i had to pick one it's it probably is okay okay buster scruggs and, and it's it's also just it's just hard to classify because it's not a typical movie and i almost wonder if part of its underwhelming performance at the oscars and it's slightly underwhelming rotten tomatoes is because it's just an anthology thing so it's an 89 78 on uh, rotten tomatoes which is solid but not you know anything or what the Coen brothers are used to. And it did get three Oscar nominations, but it's like, uh, let's see, original song, costume design, and adapted screenplay, which that one kind of flew under my radar. I didn't realize that, so four of the six seem to be Coen brothers' original stories, but two of them they did adapt from previous short stories. Yes. One by, one by Jack London, the, uh, the prospector one which is called right. uh all gold canyon that is a jack yeah. london short story uh and then the other one his oh shoot the girl yes the girl well, who got, the gal who got rattled, the is, the, got rattled. is the movie right the girl who got rattled is a short story yes yes from like 100 years ago or whatever so it was kind of funny is we, we kind of divided up our quote research even though again there's not a lot historical here but there's still plenty to talk about we kind of did a little uh, back and forth draft and then it just kind of turned out that i have the first three and logan has the last three uh which we didn't necessarily plan out intentionally here but we'll we'll both be talking about both here i guess we'll just kind of start right off here with the ballard of buster scruggs itself and this is the one i was kind of most excited to talk about because it's my i think it's, it's still my favorite segment of the six it's just the most fun and if anything my first time through watching it I was so bummed that we had to move on to other stories when I just wanted more of Buster Scruggs himself. <laughs> it is just kind of delightful. But also, I didn't really, there wasn't really much research 
to do. Like, there's I don't really have much. There's, everything is is fictional here, and some stuff we've talked about throughout. So the whole idea of these standoffs, uh, shootouts in the street, we've talked about before how they weren't really a thing. They happened very rarely, which is why they held such uh, oh attention of the national uh, nation at the time, and also to this day. And then they get repeated uh, ad nauseum in movies and books and stuff. But it's they were decidedly rare and not what we see here in the film. And just we get another look at Monument Valley. So this is the Coen Brothers' chance to do their John Ford Monument Valley moment, yep. which I'm sure uh, tickled them to no end. The, my only note here is uh, that. Uh, something you never hear about until you're actually kind of in the area and you're kind of just south of the area here is the Colorado Plateau. So we hear about all the national parks and the geographic features of the Southwest. But what you don't usually hear about is the term the Colorado Plateau. So that's kind of these big chunks of those four states, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Colorado, in which a lot of these things are. So like the thing that you know, the Grand Canyon, Zion National Park, Arches, and then the Petrified Forest. Like, all these things are in on the Colorado Plateau, just a geographic feature with the rivers going through that kind of caused all these features over, you know, millions of years or geological time. I honestly didn't really have anything else besides those two notes for Buster Scruggs. Oh, the, uh, the, sorry, the, the one historical nod we do get, though, is the dead man's hand, which you pointed out to me, and I didn't even realize that it yes. that was, yeah, the, the connection there that he sits down to play cards with the guys, looks at the hand that had been abandoned on the table, sees two aces, two eights, and says, nope, don't think I will play that hand, and right. that, that's kind of what causes the fight. And yeah, what, what I had missed the first time through that Logan had to point out is that is the dead man's hand that Wild Bill Hickok supposedly was playing when he was killed. That's a little nod there to that. This uh, You mentioned that one of the Oscar nominations that this movie got was for Best Original Song, and that song is in this oh, right. story. It's At the end, it's yes. the, uh, when a cowboy trades his spurs for wings. Yeah. Which, and this is probably might be an unpopular opinion, but I think got snubbed. Oh, for the win? Yes. At the very least, that godforsaken song from Star is Born, I... I can't stand it. <laughs> and the fact that it won an Oscar that year just drives me up the wall. Uh, it's it's a fine song, but I heard it every 10 minutes for the entire year. And I think that was the problem. Like, it's good, but yeah, it, it was kind of played to, to death. And I, I mean, I like them both. I like this movie better. The songs are almost too different to even compare. I wouldn't be mad if this one won, but I get the Star Wars War 1 winning. It was just played to death and kind of... We got over it because that that scene that in Star Wars Born is like awesome, but yeah, but it's in like the first, it's in the first twenty percent of the movie, and then the and then it never hits that high again. That we're, no, I agree. We're getting way off track here, peak, but that is the peak of the whole movie. It's <laughs> the beginning. Anyway, we're not here to talk about a Star Wars Born. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, uh, Buster Scruggs. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, it is. It is kind of fun. It just it sets the tone for the whole thing. Well, ish because the tone. I and I I'm guessing this is intentional. Each of the six, mostly it gets progressively darker as it goes. And it starts with this light, fun one, which still has plenty of murder and death and everything in it, culminating with, yes, the cowboy trading his spurs for wings, as we see, <laughs> spoiler alert for a short film from four years ago, but uh, Buster Scruggs ascend into heaven with, you know, playing his harp and everything Yeah, on, on the way there. 
Yeah, the, so the big theme throughout all of these is death. And I'm yes. thinking there's only one where a main character in the short story does not die. Correct, yeah. So uh, very, very dark and progressively darker, starting with this kind of fun one. Um, any other notes on Buster Scruggs, or we can just kind of move on to the next one? No, just it's this one, and then the one that we'll talk about at the end, The Mortal Remains. Those are my two favorites. Mm. I don't know if I could pick one as my favorite, but I will say that of all of the times that I've... So I've, I've re-watched this movie several times, but there are also times where I'll just go watch Buster Scruggs, oh. fast forward through the other four stories, and no then way. watch Mortal Remains. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, okay. most of my rewatches have actually just been those two. Okay. It's just neat. Well, we'll, 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 uh, let's rank them each at the end, because I, I, I have okay. definitely a different order, uh, I would say. Okay. All right. Okay, so one of the best known is... Not by name here, but near Algodones, <laughs> Algodones. Yeah. That is the James Franco bank robbery one, which even people who have not seen The Ballad of Buster Scruggs will recognize the meme that came out of this movie with James Franco with a noose around his neck, turning to the guy next to him saying, first time. Yeah. <laughs> That's from uh, this film, and particularly this this segment where James Franco robs a bank in uh, in New Mexico, which we'll talk about here, and is uh, quickly captured, escapes, and recaptured, which is kind of the 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 funny part there. So I do I do have some more notes here. The first was just how common were bank robberies. I was trying to look up, and it really does mm-hmm. look like it's the same as the gunfights. They were exceedingly rare, and actually. So it didn't surprise me to learn that gunfights in the street, you know, the whole quick draw thing, that those were rare. It did kind of surprise me that bank robberies were as rare as they were. So in frontier states from 1859 to 1900, so 41 years, 10 known bank robberies. Oh, okay. See, I I knew that the number wasn't as high as maybe like yeah. Hollywood westerns would make you believe, but I didn't know it was that low. You're right, two to three a decade. Yeah. So again, it's all about this mystique, and why do we know names like Jesse James? It's like because he was one of the only people doing this kind of thing. Because he was the guy doing the thing. Yeah, the doing guy the doing bank it. Wild Bill Hickok yeah. was the guy in shootoffs. Like, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, and not only were they not particularly common, they did get common. Bank robberies were an issue. Once cars were around for getaway drivers. Mm. So in the 1920s, you have a spike in bank robberies. Okay. But in the Old West, not so much. As portrayed in another Coen Brothers movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where a big part of that plot is them with the baby-faced George Nelson, Robin Banks. There you go. Yep, yep. I had a quick note that we see an old well, and I was kind of researching that. But like, yeah, humans have been building, digging wells, you know, by hand for thousands of years. And even in the early 1800s, you would have had machine dug wells. But anyway, this kind of show an old well. It always kind of fascinates me that like how people figured out how to dig wells 8,000 years ago that, you know, were sustainable. Anyway, so the geography here is a little confusing to me. And I don't know if this is if this was like just intentional, which I wouldn't be surprised because the Coen brothers, I think probably just like the way things sound. So when he, so James Franco asked the bank teller, who's of course played by Stephen Root, who's always amazing. Right. He asked him basically what communities, you know, deposit here. And the three communities he say are Valverde, Chloride, 
and Tucum Carry itself, of course, because uh, the bank is the first national or first state bank of, I wrote it down here somewhere, first state bank of Tucum Carry. But those aren't close together. <laughs> so Valverde doesn't seem to exist, but used to. There was actually a civil war battle there. It's over 250 miles away from Tucum Carry, and that's on modern roads. So there's no way Valverde people would be taking their money to, well, I mean, I say no way, if it was the, one of the few banks in the state, maybe, but then you think there'd be other communities he would mention. Uh, chloride is around today, but it's unincorporated, and it's even farther from Tucum Carry than Valverde. It's another 60 miles past Valverde. And then Algodones, which they don't mention by name in the film, or uh, is just north of Albuquerque. So anyway, so all those are kind of a ways from Tucum Carry, which my first thought was like, oh, well, maybe then it's just like the Tucum Carry State Bank that's not in Tucum Carry. But then the last thing he says is Tucum Carry itself, of course. Right. Um, so I could be way off. My guess is they just picked the communities in New Mexico that they thought sounded good. Yeah, that's entirely possible. The other thing I was wondering about was uh, death sentences for things like robbery and cattle wrestling. Since, again, the whole idea of James Franco is in the gallows or is getting uh, hung, executed twice. <laughs> and the, hence the whole first hang. time me hang, hanged. Oh, <laughs> no, you're right. Um, I always get that wrong. What's the other one? The other one is like, oh, sneaked. It's, you, don't, you, don't, you didn't... Well, Hung is grammatically correct unless you're talking about an execution. Then it's oh, hanging. is that what it is? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, like, I hung the picture on the wall. Okay. That guy was hanged for treason or whatever. Okay. Okay. Versus if, like, I say he snuck into the house, that's actually just grammatically incorrect, and it's he sneaked into the house, right? Oh, I is it really? I didn't know that. I... I I could be wrong. I didn't even know that one. So this this is just off. This I, this could be. I could be off. Don't don't. This is not a language podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ask your mom about it. Yeah, I guess so. She'll <laughs> she'll comment. And we'll follow up with uh, what she says. Yeah. yeah there yeah. you go. So I couldn't really find a lot about it, but I'm going to say that yes, that is the case because so one of the few crimes. So I was basically looking up what was still capital crimes. So. There are only a few non-murder crimes that carry the death penalty in the United States, with the main ones being treason and espionage that are still, uh, you know, capital offenses. But the two other exceptions that don't necessarily involve murder that could still get you the death penalty today, which is what makes me believe that cattle wrestling and, and bank robbery would have been capital crimes in the 19th century. Intent to kill through the mail. So if you send someone like someone something deadly in the mail, mm-hmm. but it doesn't kill them, that could still carry the death penalty just okay. for the intent to kill, which is like basically the only time that attempted murder can get you executed is if it's through the mail, Okay, which I thought was interesting. But then the other one is, and again, it was kind of vague the way it was worded, but this was like a government website, kidnapping related to bank robbery. <laughs> Okay. So basically, if you're it's, if you're doing like a bank robbery and take a hostage and like run off with them, you can get executed for that. Okay. Even if you don't kill them, and like those are the only two exceptions. So attempted murder through mail, bank robbery, kidnapping are like the only two things that you can get executed for in the United States. Yeah. Uh, without actually ki- without actually causing someone's death. Back in these times, though. Well, no, right, and that's today. That's today. Sorry. Yeah. Right. So I'm I'm saying ba- back in these times, though, not only were capital crimes like more crimes were considered capital crimes. For instance, when we went to Tombstone, which I was just there actually Again, like a yeah. week, couple weeks ago, in the 
the Boot Hill Cemetery, there is, well, number one, there there is a set of, I think it's five graves of guys who were uh, hanged for a bank robbery in Bisbee. Mm, okay. Now, they did kill somebody, though. Right. So there is that. However, <laughs> that there was the fifth guy who was only given life in prison as his sentence, but then a, a mob rode up to Tombstone from Bisbee and lynched him. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. That's, again, you know, that's extrajudicial. But then there is, uh, there's another guy there buried at Boot Hill Cemetery who he was hanged because he was found to be in possession of a stolen horse. Now, he didn't steal the horse, and it was later found out that somebody else stole it and then sold it to him, but he was the one found in possession of it, so they hanged him in tombstone. And actually says on his on his uh, grave, on his tombstone today, something like, he was right, we was wrong, we hanged him anyway, type thing. Right, almost makes it into a poem, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that leads me to believe that absolutely it you could get hanged for bank robbery. Not to mention the fact that at this time, a lot of these places were territories. They weren't states yet. Ah. And okay. I know, I don't know how it worked in New Mexico, but I know in Arizona, and there was actually like a, a plaque or a uh, something about this at the Cochise County Courthouse that we went to, mm-hmm. where they talked about how it was later on into, I think it was when, maybe, it, I don't think it was all the way when Arizona became a state, but it was later on that the power to execute prisoners was taken up to the state level. Before that, it was all the way down to the county sheriff. So you could be executed at the county level without it ever having to go up to even the uh, state level. Okay. Which is kind of what we see in the film. So again, so the, the joke in the film is, again, even though this deals with death, the joke in the film is, so he gets caught for the bank robbery pretty quickly, and they're just kind of hanging him, basically just you know hanging him in a tree with a posse or whatever. But right. then... The Comanche, which we've talked about before and stuff like Stagecoach, come yep. in and attack the party that's executing him, leaving him there on his horse. And my thought was, or my note was even then, the chief guy who kind of stares down James Franco's character and then laughs and runs off, my bet is they intend that to be Geronimo. Oh. Would you agree with that possibility? I don't know. I mean, it times out. That's what I'm saying. And the geography is is close enough. Yeah. So in my mind, that was them putting Geronimo in the movie. Yeah, that would make but sense. I could be I could be wrong. But it, but because it, yeah. it, it was the Comanche, it was New Mexico here. So in my mind, I just kind of said, you know what? I bet that's Geronimo, who you we talked about before. But yes, not necessarily. And then a guy shows up, who's driving cattle, shoots him down. And so he's like saved, and then he's like, "Okay, we're, he's taking these cattle on." He's talking about giving him a job, and then all of a sudden, this posse rolls in. Guy runs off. James Franco's like, "What's going on?" Turns out they were stolen cattle, and so James Franco gets arrested for cattle rustling. And right. it, they get the funny moment where it's just the timing and the pacing of it, where they you know take him into town. The sheriff is just like sitting in a chair there, leaning him back. Well, what are you, what are you supposed to have done? Uh, I was caught rustle, uh, with uh, stolen cattle. Well, string him up. <laughs> yep. Just that quick. Hence then the first time meme when he's on the gallows there. And uh, so they mention, he says he's taking cattle to Abilene. So my first question was Abilene, Texas or Abilene, Kansas. It, everything I was reading online sounds like for sure Abilene, Kansas. That was the direction of all the cattle drives. Yep. 
because they would put them on the they would put them on the railroad that they drive them up mm. from Texas or wherever up to Abilene, and then they would get on the railroad there. Okay, and then Abilene, Texas, which is bigger today, was actually named after Abilene, Kansas. Abilene, Kansas was first, mm. and Abilene, okay. Texas was named after it. And we've mentioned Abilene, Kansas before because Wild Bill Hickok had been a lawman there before accidentally killing a friend and then moving to Deadwood. Uh, and then, of course, President Eisenhower, born in Texas, but grew up in Abilene and considered Abilene home. And the Presidential Library for uh, Dwight Eisenhower is in Abilene, Kansas today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that gets a little mention uh, in the film here. You mentioned uh, Stephen Root makes an appearance as the bank mm-hmm. teller. He's always great. Uh, we also see as the posse leader who is going to hang James Franco in the tree is Ralph Innocent. He's the dad from The Witch, and he's also the oh. Green Knight in The Green Knight. He's got the deep, real deep, yeah, gravelly yeah. voice. Is yeah. he in Game of Thrones too? Maybe I don't think so. Uh, okay, uh, let he, me look. I think he's. I remember from The Witch that he just looked like a guy from Game of Thrones, but that might have just been how he was uh, dressed up in in The Witch. He is getting more and more work, and I'm glad to see him in more and more stuff because he absolutely rules. <laughs> for sure sorry i'm looking too because i'm like wow i was sure he was in game of thrones <laughs> oh he's in harry potter though maybe that's what i was thinking oh is who is he in harry potter he's uh amicus caro but he's in a few of the movies i think he's just like maybe one of those background death eaters he's almost just like a yeah just one of the mini death eaters i'm guessing and he's in game of thrones Five episodes as Dagmar Clefjaw. Oh, is he really? Yeah. Okay, I didn't even... I must have scrolled past it. Which, I don't remember who Dagmar Clefjaw is. I just feel like I recognize this guy. Hang on, I got, now I gotta do an image search just for like, what's this guy look like in Game of Thrones? Oh, it looks like he's an Iron Islander. So here's a picture with like him and... Oh, uh, uh, yeah, Ironborn. Yeah, he's in one of the Ironborn yeah. sailor guys. Yeah, here's yeah him with Ramsey okay. and stuff here. Okay. Anyway, what were we talking about? Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, that actor. We were talking about that actor. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah, yeah. Ralph, Ralph Innocent. Yeah, you're right. He is a very good actor. You're right. It'd be nice to see uh, and more stuff for sure. Okay, third on the list here is Meal Ticket, then. Did we accidentally go first three, last three? Yeah, that's what I was saying at the start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> You're, you're like, I want to play. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this is the one where we get Liam Neeson as a traveling, of course, he's not the performer, but he's like, it's like the traveling entertainers, and he has, oh, Dudley Dursley, I always forget that actor's name. Yeah. <laughs> as his performer, who's a, a young man with no arms and no legs, who does basically poetry and dramatic readings. So my first thing I was looking up here was, traveling performers in the old west and stuff and so i was actually really excited because like i very quickly found an article from truewestmagazine.com uh, it's, it's like a two paragraph article that basically says they were popular and the good ones made lots of money this <laughs> basically all it okay <laughs> but but it did say shakespeare was pretty popular um so like some of the readings we see him do made sense um even mm-hmm. in the old west those were popular but the most popular shows that made the most money were just those with sexy women. <laughs> so, like, you're, of course. you're out west. Like, that's that's, right. where the, that's where the money was. And we do see a version of that in Tombstone, where they kind of do the Shakespeare stuff, but then also have Dana Delaney, which I know we're not talking about Tombstone right now, 
But how familiar are you with like Animaniacs, like the from the Warner Brothers cartoon from the early nineties? Oh, like, barely at all. Okay, I mean, I know okay. of them. Okay, why? So they would do in their intro <laughs> thing. Sometimes rhymes. They do like their whole intro theme song and stuff. They'd have always like it's zany, it's animany, and then they would throw in something, some non sequitur that rhymed. Oh. Okay. And one of them was like one of the cartoon characters raising his eyebrows up and down saying, Dana Delaney. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, as far as any, you know, someone, I didn't look into the details of, because this isn't even quadriplegic. This is literally someone with no arms and no legs. Right. And like, I just can't imagine the life or the survival of someone like this in the 19th century, let alone today. The character, Liam Neeson's character, does say he found this guy on the streets of London. So, can't even imagine this guy's existence. We see Liam, ne- Liam Neeson having to, like, spoon-feed him by hand, of course, hold him while he urinates. Like, it's just, I can't even imagine that someone could have survived like this in the 19th century. And so, more just an invented character, obviously, by the, the Coen brothers, uh, who's then this crazy intelligent person who has all these things straight up memorized. He's not reading, right. he can't hold anything, it's just, yep. he has all these things memorized. The one I do want to note, he reads several, but Ozymandias by Percy Shelley is the mm-hmm. one sonnet slash poem, whatever, that I wanted to kind of comment on. Because I think we brought it up before in relation to Ramses the Great, who right. it refers to. Ozymandias is kind of a Greek version of referring to Ramses or something like that. But uh, I like the concept of this poem. I don't need to read it in its entirety. The phrase they kind of, we hear them say, and uh, among many, the phrase we hear uh, in the the film at least once, if not multiple times, look on my works, ye mighty and despair. And the whole idea being that everything eventually falls to dust. And so the poem, right. it's, it's only, you know, 14 lines long here or whatever, but that these explorers have come across the ruins of some ancient looter, looter, uh, leader and you kind of brush off the ruins and they basically say, Behold my majesty and greatness, ye mortal. I'm like, right, yeah, it, it, yeah. So, it's just, or, or you're sorry, ye mighty, implying that like whatever kings that follow, they will kneel at the altar of my glory. But yet, I am now just buried in dust and lost to the, the eternity. So it's 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 actually a really cool poem. But yeah, that's really about all I had on that one too. Uh, he does end up kind of upgrade up quote upgrading to a smart chicken. In, right. instead uh, that can do math. And I'm guessing you were not able to find any historical evidence of any uh, math chickens from the <laughs> no. from the 19th century? I uh, I didn't even look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- and honestly, of the six, this one's my least favorite. It's just so uncomfortable. Like, I, it, it's cringy. It, it's not... Uh... I don't think it's the most tragic because I think the no, it's not the most tragic. I think the gal who got rattled is the most tragic. Yes, I think it is the watch. darkest one though. I think it's the hard. Yeah, it's the hardest one to watch. It's the darkest. It's the most. I don't even know what the word is that I would use to describe. Least it. rewatchable. I feel like it's not that it's bad. It's good, but right. I just don't like yeah. it. it. It's yeah. just it's too tough. It's to gross. Watch. Yeah, yeah, it's gross. And yeah, it's. I just feel honestly, I just feel very uncomfortable with the guy with no arms and no legs. I just. I can't handle that. I don't know why. Like, but it, it also just just because I think how hard his life is. Like, not that he's quote gross. Like, it's just more like like this is too depressing. Oh right, yeah. Let me <laughs> let me clarify. I don't mean the guy with no arms and no legs is gross. I mean the way that he's treated by 
he's basically a piece of property. Right. And is just, yeah, it, I mean, the title of it says it all. He's he's a meal ticket. Yeah, yeah. And then once, yeah, and then once he outlives his usefulness, the utility to his not even manager. not even outlives. He's just he's just slightly more inconvenient to have around than a chicken, and yeah. so he gets thrown off a bridge for it. Yeah, and and despite his, uh, yeah, that's yeah. It's I just can't I can't handle that one. Like it's <laughs> it's just yeah yeah. Well done, good good Greek tragedy stuff from the Cohen brothers, but uh. Okay, moving on to your three. What do we got? So the next story is called All Gold Canyon. And this one is actually the most uplifting. If I had to pick one that's the most lighthearted, I think I would say Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Maybe you can make the argument for Neil Agadones, but I think Ballad of Buster Scruggs is more lighthearted and also it's more fantastical. But this one is, it's grounded but it's the most, it's the most positive. Um, and this is actually the one where uh, it's the only story out of all of these where the main character actually lives. Right. Um, exactly. Where he and it not only lives, but actually almost cheats death. So right. Uh, we follow a prospector played by Tom Waits, and we see him panning for gold, um, which is an actual thing. Um, it you know this was. Uh, in the 1840s, 1850s, um, you have the gold rush in California in 1849. And so out West, there was a lot of prospecting. People would move out there to try and strike it rich by finding gold. So we see him panning for gold and they, they actually do a really good, a really, this is like the best representation I've seen in movies of how this process actually works. So you basically shovel this dirt into a, a pan go into the river, wash away the dirt, and look to see if there's any specks of gold because they'll sink to the bottom as you pan this gold. Or as you as you pan the dirt, the gold will because sink. Because gold is so dense. Even though it's right. these little flakes, it's those, those flakes are still denser than the sand and everything around it. Yeah. Right. So he, he finds a spot that he thinks will be good, digs a hole, doesn't find anything, digs another hole, keeps going down the river until he finds like just a couple flecks. A couple little specks of gold in his pan. So then he keeps digging holes along the river in that same direction. And the number of specks that he finds each time goes up. So the concentration of gold is going up. Then it starts to go back down until it gets to zero. So he puts up two flags. One where he found zero right before he started finding. And the one where he found zero after he found a bunch of gold leading up to right. it. Right. So he's got, he's got it isolated now. Yeah. Right. So now he knows, all right, uphill from where I am is the pocket of gold where the main deposit is. So then you see him digging the holes and it kind of makes this triangle pattern, then going up the hill, and then he stands at the top, the point where the triangle, you know, ends, and that's where he digs his hole and that's where he finds the the gold deposit that he calls Mr. Pocket. Right, and the mother load, where it load, right. L-O-D-E, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so he, he finds this uh, pocket of gold. Well, as soon as he finds it, there's a guy standing right behind him, and he shoots him, just shoots him one time in the back, and then waits to jump into the hole. Like, lights a cigarette and everything, and just kind of waits, yeah. Right, like, all right, I shot this guy, he might not be dead right now, but I'm just going to sit here and wait. If he doesn't move, then I can assume that he's dead, and I'm going to jump in there and start getting the gold. So the guy waits and waits and waits, jumps in the hole, 
gets taken out by Tom Waits because he was faking dead the whole time. Waiting for the guy to hop in, yeah. Waiting for the guy to hop in the hole with him. And then he prevails, he lives. And yeah, like I said before, it's the only time where the main character actually lives and he actually cheats death because he gets shot, but just through whether it's luck. You did nothing important. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. Um, I also really like the way that they show his relationship with nature. Like, he kind of accepts his place in the the hierarchy mm. of nature. Like, it shows him when he yes. climbs a tree. And uh, it's it, <laughs> it's one of my favorite lines. The eggs? Where he, yeah, because he's taking the eggs and he, like, takes them all and then sees the owl sitting there staring at him, rob the nest. So he puts them all back. And then he looks at the owl and looks at the eggs and he takes one. He says, okay, maybe just one. And then he says, how high can an owl count anyway? And then climbs back down. I love that line. I think that's so fun. But yeah, nothing nothing really historical to say about this one. Just that, you know, prospecting for gold was a, a, a popular thing for people out west because of the gold rushes. And there were more than one. But yeah, this is this is one of my, well... I don't. I'll, I'll have to think about how how this ranks among the <laughs> other ones, but it's it's the one that makes me feel the best. I guess I'll say it that way. It's the one that makes me feel the best watching it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I like, and this is just, I think, a testament to the genius of the Coen brothers. But they put this one right after Meal Ticket. I think kind of like a palate cleanser. So you watch Meal Ticket and you're like, oh my god, like I just mm-hmm. feel horrible. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so uncomfortable. Like you feel like right. you need to like take a shower after watching that one. It's it's bad. And then you watch this one and you're like, oh right. okay, I feel good again. Like this this was nice. This is like a nice little a nice little story. Someone who actually, you know, gets what they deserve in a good way. Right. And it's uh and it's it's visually brighter. Like Meal Ticket right. is dark tones, all their shows are at night. Like I don't think it's daylight ever in Meal Ticket. It's just dark, dark, dark. And then all Gold Canyon is bright and green right. and the river yep. and the sun and the animals and flowers. Like, it's very much a power cleanser. You're right. So, I just got back from Alaska where I went on a little tour thingy where we got to pan for gold. Oh, yeah? And, uh, yeah, it's it's it's, uh, it's, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was at an old gold dredge from the 1920s. So this is all where it's all more like kind of factory style, you know, done. That right. this, dre- this dredge ran, basically doing a similar kind of thing, but on an industrial scale from like the 20s to the 50s. Uh, but actually the 20th century, not the, not the 19th century. Anyway, the part of the tour is they have almost like cafeteria style set up these like water troughs. Everybody gets their actual like big heavy metal pan. They're heavy. Like my hands were getting like, it was like fatiguing my hands just to do one little, they give you a poke as part of your entry fee, which is okay. like a bag of bag of dirt. Yeah. And uh, you basically then, all right, we're going to teach you to pan it, pan, pan the gold. And they basically, you're going to get gold flakes out of this and you're going to keep them like actual gold. And, uh, okay. And then if you, and if you like it, you could buy another poke for about 30, for about 30 bucks. But uh, they're still coming out ahead, but it's, it's almost like a little bit of a lottery ticket there too. So like then after you get your little gold flakes out of it, you put them in a little, that little plastic, you know, cylinder that you yeah. put it in. And then you take it to the guy and he weighs it. He dumps out your flakes. They put it on the scale. And so they said my five little shiny flakes was almost like $6. 
but I was that was like the lowest number I heard. I heard, I heard, heard a couple other people getting theirs weighed. I heard like anywhere from like nine dollars to twenty four dollars. So yeah, you're losing money on your thirty bucks of poke if you wanted to keep doing it. Right. But you're getting actual gold back each time. Yeah. Uh, even if you're paying more than value for it, and just just the process was kind of interesting, and it's 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 harder than you think, and you keep this really steep angle. So like you always think of the shaking side to side. That's a very minimal part of it. Most of your time is spent with the whole thing at an angle, and you yeah. just dip it in and pull it back out, dip it in, pull it back out, no shaking at all. The whole idea right. is that the gold is already settled into the little notch, and you're just washing away sediment from the top each yeah. time until you're down to just the little bits. And again, we kind of see that in the film when he's going down to the river. I just, just kind of pointed out that it's very hard work. Yeah. <laughs> Which all the more reason than in the film... You're so, so, so pissed when he gets shot because you see the work that has been put in to be, that could be potentially taken away by one bullet yep. uh, in the back. All right. So after All Gold Canyon, we move on to what I think is the most tragic story out of the six. Yeah. And the other one based on, so these two back to back are the ones based on. On actual, on a previously written short stories. Yep. So the. The Gal Who Got Rattled, uh, which is based on a short story from 1901 called The Girl Who Got Rattled. And it follows, I think, Alice, right, is her name? Oh, shoot, I forget. They call her by her last name more often. It is, yeah. Alice Longabaugh. Yeah, call her Miss Longabaugh. Played by Zoe Kazan, who Rich is a big fan of. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And she is with her brother on the Oregon Trail which I did have a little bit on the Oregon Trail because that's uh, one of the only like actual big historical pieces. I, we did talk a little bit about it when we talked about Oregon in First Cal, but the Oregon mm. Trail stretched over 2,000 miles from Independence, Missouri to Oregon City, Oregon. For any listeners that are not familiar with United States geography, uh, it goes from like the middle of the country all the way out to the, to the northwest of the country. Yes. And it was essentially kind of like the first highway for settlers going west. Um, It's not necessarily like one specific trail. There are parts that are that way, but it was basically just like a collection of routes going from the east to the west. And it did have, in certain cities, were considered kind of exits. So you would take, you could take the Oregon Trail and then get on the Santa Fe Trail and go to Santa Fe. Or you could take the Oregon Trail out west and then hit the... Uh, I think they called it the Bozeman Trail that went to Montana. There was the California Trail that went down to California. And then the Mormon Trail that went down to Salt Lake City, Utah. So there were these, at certain points along the way, you could turn off for different destinations if you didn't want to go to Oregon. You could, you could go to different, uh, different places out west. So like we said, uh, when we talked about First Cal, there were settlers in Oregon prior to the popularity of the Oregon Trail. It was a British territory first, but the Oregon Trail became really popular in the 1840s due to, number one, Oregon becoming a territory in 1848, and then the California Gold Rush of 1849. You had just like a massive influx of people wanting to go west, and most of them did use the Oregon Trail. The trail itself, like we see in the show, is a very harsh journey presented numerous challenges and dangers, disease, harsh weather, river crossings, mountain passes, which I think that's something that we're so disconnected from today is how treacherous just traveling across land can be. 
especially like a river crossing or a mountain pass. You don't even think about that today because like you're driving on the interstate. It's like, oh, you just drive over a bridge and get across river. Right. River crossing is incredibly dangerous, especially when you're doing it with like <laughs> a team of animals and a giant wagon. Like a lot of people died just going across rivers. <laughs> right. And then also like we see in the movie attacks from Native Americans uh, because this these trails were going through Native American territory. Uh, pretty much the entire way. Which is one of the main reasons you traveled in a big caravan like this was for protection. Right. And circling the wagons, circling the exactly. wagons was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where, where you get the uh, the saying, circle the wagons, is because that's how, when they would set up camp, you'd put your wagons in a, in a big circle and basically make like a little miniature temporary fort out of your wagons. So the Oregon Trail uh, was very popular in the 1840s. However, over the next couple decades, it did begin to lose popularity because the first transcontinental railroad was completed in 1869. So you didn't have to get on a wagon train anymore. You could just buy a train ticket and it was mm. way easier, way more convenient and way safer. Safer. Right. Yeah. Right. And so then, you know, you saw with the, the railroad becoming more and more established, the wagon trains, you know, basically died out with the, the popularity of the railroad. It just wasn't worth the risk. At some 100%. Point. Like, they would have died out. Once the train's out there, it's like, oh, wagon trains are now done. Right. Because like, there is no reason to take the risk if you can get on a train. Exactly. Exactly. And the even though you know it was a relatively short-lived thing, the Oregon Trail does hold a kind of a popular place in, in the, the mythology of America. The trail and the settlers who used it kind of becoming this symbol of like the pioneering, pioneering American spirit. And pursuit of a better life, even even today. And the video game, did you? Did they still have the video game when you were little? I I never played the game. Uh, I am familiar with it. I I know about it, but I never I never played it. It it was before my time. Yeah, and I'm sure there was probably different iterations over the year too. But this is like, I mean, I remember like the whole five and a quarter disc computer game in like grade school. People playing Oregon Trail yeah. and like you know fifth fifth grade on the computer and stuff and like the whole you have died of dysentery yeah isn't it like a in the the lame graphics and it's like a very early like very rudimentary kind of resource management rpg type game yeah yeah you can you can stop and figure out what to spend your money on resources but then you're gonna be on the trail and it's like well you better have the right resources as far as food or repairs for your wagon or just kind of making sure you've balanced your resources correctly as you go to the next thing. Uh, there could be Indian attacks. But again, it's all this, you know, <laughs> early, mid-80s. <laughs> very, very, <laughs> like, but again, not like a, you know, a Pong. Like, it's it's almost like a text-based kind of thing. Right, yeah. But there but there was then, I still remember kind of like, you had to, like, you could go choose, you could buy ammunition and stuff. So you could then go choose to hunt. And then you actually, so you would have, like, maybe a little bit of a, video game thing where you'd have to like maybe move your your cursor and like to figure out how to shoot a deer uh-huh. uh you know with your pixel right <laughs> it's going across anyway so yeah it's it's kind of just the whole getting across the whole country was actually very very difficult and so you have died of dysentery is uh kind of a not quite a meme i guess but just definitely a kind of a running joke for those who played Oregon Trail back in the day and like almost kind of know that by the game more than by the actual <laughs> Oregon Trail right yeah. Okay. So more about the actual the actual story. So we follow Alice. She is in Boston with her brother at the beginning of the story in this boarding house uh, where they foreshadow his death because uh, they at the around the dinner table they all talk about some guy that lived in the boarding house who had a cough and then died and then 
the brother gets the same cough and ends up dying on the trail. And he's kind of this, like, oppressive figure in Alice's life. He wants to marry her off to a business partner uh, when they get to Oregon. And then, so after after he dies, she's kind of alone on the trail. And there's this, like, hand, like a, a helper guy who claims that the brother was going to pay him $400. And now he says that Alice owes her the money. So then one of the trail bosses named Billy Knapp, he agrees to marry Alice to kind of help her out with the debt thing and so that she's not, you know, alone on the trail. And it happens a little more organically than that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Some of these other ones we were able to pretty concisely describe. This is the longest one. No, this was more nuanced by far. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, this is over half an hour, isn't it, of the whole runtime? Uh-huh, yeah. So there's that. There's the fact that... So there's also the dog. So there's a dog that the brother has that barks, and everyone kind of hates it. So Alice, like, has... Billy go euthanize the dog, but then the dog like jumps out of his hand and runs away and then comes back later and she goes out to rescue the dog because they can hear a barking in the distance. And over the course of the story, she's getting like progressively more and more progressively less and less nervous and more and more confident. And, you know, at the beginning, she like doesn't want to leave the wagon train at all. But then by the time we get to this last point in the story, she rides out away from the train to go rescue the dog and is followed by the other stage boss, uh, whose name is... Mr. Arthur. Mr. Arthur. Yep, Mr. Arthur. And uh, they are attacked by a uh, Native American war party. And probably not Comanche because we'd be too far north for that. I, I didn't look to see what tribe that yeah, would be. Yeah, it'd be north and west, so maybe... Maybe Sue, maybe Sue, Sue or something. Lakota, or Dakota, yeah. what, maybe something similar. Hard to say, yeah. Anyways, and and they they don't say in the show. Right. But uh, that's actually what the the short story, the 1901 short story, is basically just that last part, is just the attack. I, I, I found it and kind of skimmed it, and some of the dialogue in the last part is like verbatim. Right. But then like the beginning seemed, I couldn't, yeah, basically yeah, it was almost just the end, you're right. The short story is basically just the last part, and the main character is the guy who saves the day, or who... Billy... Na- no, 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 not Billy, uh, Mr. Arthur. Okay, he, he didn't have the same name. Right. So Billy Knapp was the same name in the short story, but the other names were changed. Right. Anyway. So so he's the main character in the short story. Gotcha. And it's, so gotcha. basically it's like the Coen brothers took the short story, made the girl the main character, and then expanded it to yeah. give her more of a history. Right, okay. But yeah, so he tells her what he thinks will happen to her if she's taken alive and hands her a pistol and then goes out and against all odds is successful in driving away the war party, but then comes back to find that she has prematurely shot herself. So that's why I think it's the most tragic. She because got she, rattled. Right. Yeah. Because it shows this, you have this growth of her over the whole course of the story. You have her kind of getting out from under the thumb of her brother and accepting, basically taking control of her own fate and her own future. But then that is kind of like turned on its head where she takes so much full control of her future that she makes the hard decision and the fast decision to kill herself when that was the wrong decision to make at the time because she was actually safe. Right, right. Basically, she was trying to save herself from a fate worse than death. Right. 
but she was already had been saved from it, and it wasn't the last moment exactly. that she would have should have waited to. Yeah. And like the line of Mr. Roger even says, like, she ought not to have done it. Yep. So I actually made a note of this one because I I not to doubt your your abilities here, but I kinda doubt you I doubted you would catch this. Okay. Because I I don't think I caught it until this viewing, and I was like, oh, wait, what's that mean? Did you catch the term doe face? No. So they're talking, it's when they're talking about religion and politics, and I forget exactly how it came up. So the dog's name is President, President Pierce, Pierce. Right. Name for Franklin Pierce. At some point, Billy Knapp kind of casually references Doughface. And I forget exactly how it's used. If it means like, basically, I am not, or I'm assuming your brother was a Doughface. Basically, he just says it one time, and I'm like, so my note I made up to research was, or wrote up to research was, uh, wait, is there a connection? Is Doughface like a President Pierce supporter? And like her brother was a Doughface beca- and named the dog President Are Pierce? Are you saying Doe like D-O-E, like a female deer, or Doe like D-O-U-G-H, like bread dough? Bread dough. Okay, okay. Yeah, so, or, may- or maybe she says that she's not a Doughface like her brother. Anyway, so something like that. And so, But yeah, like, that was a thing. So, and I'll just read the quote here about the term so the term doughface coined in 1819 by john randolph of virginia as a term of contempt for members of the house of representatives from the north who voted against the amendment to prevent the further introduction of slavery into missouri uh proposed by james talmage of new york so basically doughfaces were northerners who were okay with slavery continuing one of whom was president pierce that was just the term. It was Doughface. So it is connected to the dog being named President Pierce, her brother being a Doughface. The term Doughface is used in the film, and that is all historically correct. That Doughfaces, like Pierce, were Northerners who were okay with slavery in the South. Huh. What's the origin of Doughface? Is it just... Uh, it, it, I mean, I didn't get into the nitty-gritty of that, other than it was meant as a slight. Like, it was a term of... Yeah, it was a yeah term of contempt. So it was... Uh, Meant as an insult, but I, I think it just maybe meant you were soft. Okay. Like, but like bread dough. Oh, like you don't like you won't stand up for anything. You don't. Ha- yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I, I think it's just a way of saying you're soft. Huh. Okay. Oh, and then sorry. I had, and then I think I still have brain fog from getting back from my uh, travels here and an overnight flight here. So I, I, a couple of notes I, I kind of missed. Well, one is actually a question for you. So you mentioned the kind of the differences in the short story in the film for girl who got rattled here. Any differences you're aware of for the Jack London, Algo Canyon? Oh no, no i i didn't I didn't read the short stories. Okay. I just saw that they were based on short stories. Yeah. Okay. So but the other one is uh, I forgot to mention when they were telling us how to pan for gold in in Alaska. There, the guy said, "Hey, it's rare, but it's possible you won't get any flakes. But don't worry because if that happens, you can tell everyone back home that it didn't pan out." And everyone starts laughing, except me, because I'm like, wait, that's not a joke. Holy cow, that's where the phrase comes from. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's that's the origin. When these things don't pan out, it means, like, panning for gold. That's what it's from. Huh, okay. Yeah, so I, I could I was like, why is everyone, I was like, I was like, so, why is everyone laughing? Like, this is not a joke. <laughs> but again, he was delivering it as a joke, too. So I think maybe they're laughing at how he delivered. I'm like, it was funny, I was the one with not laughing. <laughs> My other note was actually from, back from the Buster Scruggs part, the whole quick draw thing. 
So they do have contests today for like quick drawing and stuff. Uh-huh. But the term actually even had a different meaning in the 19th century. If you were a known as a quick draw or a fast draw, oh, he's, he's quick on the draw. Right. That did not mean <laughs> you physically drew your pistol quickly. Oh, did it? Mean- it meant you had a temper. Like you, had a, like you have a chip on your shoulder. You're a quick draw. Yeah, you have a temper. You're, yeah. you're going to be more likely to pull your gun in an argument. Right, okay. You're a quick draw. So it had a completely different meaning. Huh. So it was a term, but it didn't mean how we mean it today. Yeah. And I almost wonder if you think of stories then, they're almost going to get misinterpreted, possibly intentionally. So it's like, oh, these stories of all these quick draw guys. So yeah, these stories of a-holes with tempers who would just pull their gun out. I also have one one more note. Okay. I have a uh, one of my cousins is in this movie as an extra. He's one of the guys... Walking in the uh, wagon train behind, uh, oh, nice. When uh, Billy Knapp and Alice are are talking, uh, or no, no well, you, several times you see him, but yeah, he's one of the other settlers in the back walking. So shout out to my cousin JJ, who's actually in this movie. Nice. How did he get that gig? Is he do a lot of lot of extra work, or is it more just like he was in the area they were filming and it was an extra call? Yeah. So he he was living in Western Nebraska at the time, and they were shooting. That's where they shot this. And I think it was okay. just like a casting call for like local, local burly actors. looking dudes that had like, because he has like beard and like longer hair. And so, oh, perfect. like, hey, you want to be like an extra, come like sign up. I awesome. think, awesome. I, I, I don't know the whole story, but. Yeah, and I, and I think they pay like a hundred bucks a day kind of thing. Like it's it's worth your time. I mean, I I would do it for free to be in a Coen Brothers movie. Like, are you serious? 100%. 100%. But yeah, yeah. I don't think they're allowed. I don't know if they're necessarily allowed to right. do a casting call and then not pay you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I know that there were, uh, when I was stationed in California, there were, like, people who would go do that. They would go do, like, be extras as, not right, really as right. a side game, but just, almost like a hobby. Right. Because there's, like, websites. And if you if you live, you know, somewhere that isn't Southern California, it's probably way fewer and further between that you'll, hit, hit on, that, it's, yeah. that it's accessible to you. But if you live within driving distance of L.A., like, there's always movies and shows that are like, hey, we need extras. And some of them are literally like, just sign up and just come here. And like, the first so many people that sign up, are you're an extra. Huh. And I guess, yeah, it might be different if it's like, I can't imagine if there's like a crowd scene with, you know, tens of thousands of people that they are paying them all $100 each, I guess. But so I, there might be different degrees of all of that, too. Okay. Last but not least. Yeah, last but not last but not least is The Mortal Remains. Which, along with the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the first story is uh, is my favorite. So, yeah, this one and Buster Scruggs have the most number of rewatches for me. Okay. And this this is basically the old west. It's the old west version of like light at the end of the tunnel. This is your journey to the afterlife. I was gonna say crossing the river sticks. Crossing the river sticks, yeah. exactly. So there's you have three. Well, there's there's five people in a in a carriage. Three of them are strangers, and then the other two sitting on the other side of the carriage are basically the embodiment of death. And it tells a tale of this this stagecoach ride to the afterlife, and kind of explores the philosophies of these three people. But you don't know that's what it is. That's it's on its face, right? It's, it's it doesn't ever on its face. It's just a carriage. Ride. Yes, it doesn't ever say that. Yeah. That's what it is outright, but it's like so heavily implied. Although it was actually completely lost on me the first time. Oh, was it really? Like I don't. Yeah, I was just like I don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) 
I didn't get the metaphor. I was just taking it at face value and was very confused. With this you with the sun going down and the the coachman won't stop and they and the Well, but also like the the other five aren't so metaphor laden, I don't feel. Like I was I was just taking them all I took all six at face value. And I feel like if you do that and the other five, they all still make sense. Right. And then this one didn't. Yeah, I don't know. So I, no. It's probably you that pointed it out to me, and I'm like, oh, okay. Now, it's yeah, good. especially when, especially when you get to the end and the doors open up of the hotel, and there's the light at the top of the well, staircase, okay. like, and that that's where I think I finally started to get yeah. it. Yeah, but like the whole time though, I didn't get it until that. Oh, point. okay, okay. And even then, I was like, wait, maybe. Yeah. So it it uh, it, it kind of follows the. It talks about the. It's just like these these five people three of whom are on their journey to the afterlife and two of whom are the embodiment of death, talking about their philosophy, about life, about dying, about, you know, the different kinds of people. So one of my one of my favorite conversations, not just in this movie, it probably is my favorite conversation in this movie, but one of my favorite conversations in all of film is these five talking about whether there's one kind of person or two kinds of people, because the trapper says there's only one kind of people are all like he says they're all like ferrets more or less the same even if you travel to Siam people more or le- are more or less the same but then the lady says no there's there's two kinds of people and then they go around the carriage and the rest of them say what two kinds of people there are and so Clarence who is Brendan Gleeson says hale and frail so like people who are like strong and able bodied and people who are like about to die he he also uses a different word like people who are like easy to knock to the floor or something like that <laughs> the frenchman says lucky and unlucky the uh thing pen who's the the other death guy uh says the two kinds of people are dead and alive and then she <laughs> says no the two kinds of people are upright and sinning and then they have a discussion about you know their yeah. philosophy on, on what that all means but yeah this there's just so much there's so much i love about this and i just have I have just kind of a list. They're not really in, in any specific order of just like things that I like about this part of the movie. Okay. One of them is the light change. So when you start out, it's like sunset. Everything's like golden hour, you know, nice golden light bathing, everything. And as it goes on, because it's a sunset, as the sun's going down, it gets darker and darker until at the very end, it's, you know, nighttime and there's, you know, it's only moonlight that is illuminating anything. But also as the sun goes down, there conversation goes from more jovial especially because like at the beginning you have the guy singing that like fun happy upbeat song all the way as the sun goes out it gets more and more sinister until he's talking about how he likes to look into the eyes of people as they're dying uh, right i already mentioned the one song that the guy sings at the beginning i really like that one i wish it was on the soundtrack it's not but the one that is on the soundtrack is unfortunate lad which is the song that Brendan Gleeson sings. Mm. It's cool because it's it's just him singing. There's no like music to go along with it or anything. And the song is about a guy who's dying from an STD and how he wishes that she would have told him, the STD that he gets from a prostitute, and he, he wishes that she would have told him about it before because he probably could have taken some medicine but now it's too late, and so now he's like saying what he wants his last will and testament to be, and it's kind of this goes along with the whole theme of well the the whole movie in general, but especially this section where it's like the inevitability of death, but also you know the way that if 
you live your life differently, then your outcome might be different. But yeah, that's that's another song. I actually listen to that song a lot too. It's probably one of my most played songs the year after this movie came out because I was I was listening to the soundtrack like nonstop. There's so many good songs in this movie. <laughs> but yeah, and then also final thing, there are another reason that I like watching this one and Buster Scruggs, not only because they are the bookends of the movie and they're the ones with the best music and because they're the most fantastical. So the middle four are more grounded in reality, but like in this one, you have it's them going on a journey to the afterlife, and in the in Buster Scruggs, you have like him like doing the thing where he taps his clothes, and then like you know like Looney Tune style, the dust is still in the form yeah. of him, or uh, you know yeah. his gun shooting skills where he can shoot the five fingers off of a guy from all the way down the street. When he dies, he's like shot in the head, but he doesn't die for like a good thirty seconds to a minute. And then his right. ghost rides out and he sings a song together uh, with the guy who shot him. Like, that's more fantasy type stuff along right. with this one. Uh, but then also, there are some parallels between this last story and the first one, um, the biggest of which is poker. So we hear the Frenchman talking about this, tells a story about how he was playing poker with this Polish guy. And he had to go to the bathroom and wanted him to play his hand. And he says, I can't play your hand for you because no one can play the hand of anyone else. Because how you bet is based on your life, your unique life experience up to that point. So everyone is, you know, it's basically the opposite of what the trapper says. So the trapper says all people are all basically alike. There's no difference between them. And the Frenchman says, no, they're all, everyone is completely different. Everyone is shaped by their experiences. And so no one is the same as anyone else. And so that parallels to Buster Scruggs, who, when he sits down at the poker table, says, I'm, I am not going to play this hand. Also, interestingly enough, we have this Frenchman, an old Frenchman in the carriage who is talking about how he used to, he, you know, plays poker. It really informs his life philosophy. In the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, one of the guys sitting at the table, played by David Krumholtz, is a young Frenchman with a very similar... Mm hairstyle and a very similar you know facial hair setup oh i think it might be the same guy like so it's a diff- different actor but you think the implications that it's the same character right because in real life neither one of those guys is french that was a decision made by the filmmakers to make both of those guys french oh that's fun i i like that a lot if they're this, if they're potentially the same character and just decades apart. Right. I think it's that guy who's sitting there playing cards in Frenchman's Gulch with Buster Scruggs decades later this is his he's one of these people who is on his journey to the afterlife oh i'm gonna have to pull that back up <laughs> to look at that that's awesome <laughs> and did you did you read that anywhere or that's your conclusion like that's awesome no that's that i i came i didn't even know that that that's what the because david krumholtz he has an accent and it wasn't so doing research for this episode you know you he only says a couple lines and it, to me, right. it just kind of sounded like vaguely European, like a vaguely foreign accent. But if you go look, he's credited as Frenchman in Saloon. So he is uh, supposed to be French. Okay. And the guy in the carriage is obviously very clearly supposed to be French. Yeah, his name's Rene, and he, yes, he says we, and he's, you know, he's like, speaks right. French, yeah. Right, and the actor is not, though, so it wasn't like, yeah. Correct, yeah. 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 Huh, that's interesting. Uh, my only note is how they kind of play with metaphor here. So they're asking the two 
the two that are ferrying them, they're asking them what they do, and they kind of beat around the bush. They, they're escorting the guy on top. So that's, that's I think, what kind of delayed me, too. So it's like, if they're supposed to be dead, but there's also a dead body on top of the carriage. So that was almost a little bit of a disconnect for me. I'm like, yeah. so why is he not up and about in the carriage? Anyway, they're, ask, they're asking him what they do, and he plays around with metaphor. He's like, oh, I think of us as reapers or harvesters of souls. And the woman, and the woman says, so a bounty hunter or or whichever one says, so bounty hunters. And so they're basically saying that he's using Reaper and Harvesters as a metaphor for bounty right. hunter when it's actually the reverse. Right. They're literally Reapers and Harvesters of yes. souls and bounty hunter is the metaphor. Exactly. And that, yeah, that messes with my yeah. head too, but it's, it's, it is clever. It is clever. Again, that's one of, that's one of my favorite parts about this is, yeah, he, he says, to their faces, we are reapers. We are harvesters of souls. And the trapper, yeah, he's like, oh, a bounty hunter. And, so, and he's like, yeah. oh, yes, cruel man, literal man. And it's like, no, he's he's being serious. No, he wasn't, he wasn't beating around the bush, like trying to say, you know, try making it sound like he's elevating himself because he's just a bounty hunter. And he wants to elevate himself to something else. No, he's being 100% literal, saying, no, I am death. <laughs> And then there's the the coachman is also worth mentioning because mm-hmm. he very much is oh shoot what's, there's a I should know this too there, what's the it's name the boat the boat guy yeah what's the name of the ferryman on the river sticks hang on I'm I'm gonna Google it real fast it's got a name he's got a name anyway so he's very much that figure who doesn't talk and they even kind of at some point is someone choking or something and the woman's like we got get the carriage to stop she has like a panic attack yeah yeah it's like the coachman will not stop is it Ka- Karen Caron, Car- yeah, something like yeah. that. C H A R O N. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. I'm not sure about pronouncing either, but that's what I was thinking of. I think. Uh, so I did go ahead. You want? So I did. I did order mine in preference. If you want to do that real quick too. All right, you you go first, and I'll think about it, and then I'll just I'll just I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do it live. Okay. Well, and I was just doing it while you were talking earlier. <laughs> okay. 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 So my one order of preference, and again, some of them are like are too close to call, and then other ones are made more of a tier below. Okay, so yeah, my favorite is the Battle of Buster Scruggs because it is the most fun. But I don't want to say that's followed very closely by, if not interchangeable with, the gal who got rattled. Like I just think it's the best character development. It's just the best story. Okay, which ties with you saying it's the most tragic. I, I think it's the best story, and Buster Scruggs is the most fun. So those, those are an easy one two for me. And then I'd say three is near Al Godone's. I just really like the fun of the James Franco character and kind of the pacing, the comic pacing throughout that one gives us the iconic meme. Then I have to go all gold Canyon and which then kind of by default leaves mortal remains all the way down at five for me. Oh geez. And then, and then I just, I just can't, I can't stomach meal ticket. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hate, I, I, it'd be too far to say I dislike it. But I don't like watching it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I guess is essentially the same thing. But, it, but or you could argue it's more like a a requiem for a dream, or never, rarely, sometimes. Oh, uh, always. right. Or I just don't like watching or it. Twelve years a slave. Twelve years a yeah. slave, and and uh, Hotel Rwanda. Like you know, it's just I just can't watch right. it. But it's good. Um, but I'll, oh, I'll, hey, I'll put that at six. Speaking of ho- d- real brief side note. Speaking of Hotel Rwanda, did you see? Uh, Rusasa Begena, no, he, he got released from prison. Yeah, he's free now. Oh my gosh. So we've, yeah, for, for those who have been following along with us, uh, yeah, so the actual character played by Don Cheadle in Hotel Rwanda, that real life person had been re- relatively recently imprisoned by the Rwandan government for speaking out against them. 
And Logan and I just kind of assumed he was going to get executed or disappeared at some point. So, because uh, he actually was kidnapped while living in, or tricked into like basically their custody. He was like in the United States, safe, and got tricked into falling into Rwanda custody. And yeah, that's crazy. That's awesome. When did he get released? It was this year, in back in March. Okay. He appealed for clemency and it was granted, and his sentence was commuted by the president of Rwanda. Wow. And honestly, probably saved his life that it was so public. A hundred percent. Yeah. That like they know the world is watching. Yep. And now, hey, if you have a Putin, he doesn't care and they get rid of those people anyway. But Rwanda was basically like, yeah, we got to let this guy yeah. go. He's too, he's too, he's too, he's too well known. Yep. We're going to look like the bad guys. And yeah. So, huh. Well, yeah, that's awesome. Hopefully he's made it back to the States or wherever he would prefer to live to be safe there. No, I hadn't heard that. That's awesome. Thanks for the update. Okay. So what's your order on these, these, all right. These six? So my number one, I think is mortal remains. It's basically a tie between Mortal Remains and Buster Scruggs. Gotcha. But I just, I love the parallels between that one and Buster Scruggs. And I I like the more metaphorical nature of that story versus, like you said, the rest of them are kind of, you just take them at face value, what the story is about. Right. And I definitely appreciate it more hearing you talk about it, but that doesn't necessarily make it more engaging for me to sit and watch, yeah. I guess. I don't know. So I would say it barely edges out buster scruggs but it's basically they're basically tied for first but i have to pick one so i'm gonna pick mortal remains number two buster scruggs number three the gal who got rattled oh okay okay i thought you might go all gold canyon there no so i i would say gal who got rattled because i agree i think it is the best story out of all of them then all gold canyon and then uh, near Agadones with also a meal ticket for me is probably number six. And for the, okay. for the same we, reason, yeah. it's, it's hard, hard to watch. It doesn't make you feel good. It's the darkest one. If I'm watching the whole movie or so this is a fun rewatch because you can, you can skip and fast forward and like watch whichever chunks you want anytime you rewatch it. And so like I said, most of the time, I'm usually just watching one and six. But every once in a while, maybe I'll pick another one or another two to include in there. Uh-huh, so out of all yeah. these, the one that I've watched the least number of times is Meal Ticket. Like, that's the... that's right, uh, like, if, yeah. if I have to cut one, it's getting cut every time. Right, right. What's <laughs> funny is, I need, to, I need to double check with them. So my dad's also a big Coen Brothers fan. And like his favorite movies, Big Lebowski, he, he you know, just, he, he loves the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. But I think on this one, he basically would just watch Buster Scruggs over and over again and then turn it off. <laughs> like I think he just, he just, just likes Buster Scruggs. Yeah. And the rest of it, the rest of it's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that because the first one, it, it definitely has, it definitely has a unique vibe to the rest of the, the other ones. Yes. Like it's a, you, yes. this unique feeling. Because it's not metaphorical, but it is more fantastical. Right. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I do kind of wish that they that they explored that for more. Like that they, you know, set a whole movie in that universe, like in that style. Where it's like a almost cartoonish kind of representation of the Wild West, but also with like... The violence, but also cool. Yeah, yeah, also cool. Yeah, and and with a very with that very like complicated, intricate Coen Brothers style dialogue that right. Tim Blake Nelson has the whole time. 
And if anything, I would say that that's probably my main knock. I mean, it's may not main knock. This is my knock against the film is that the tone of the Bounda Buster Scruggs, like the first short story we get, in a way, you feel like that's making a promise to you about what you're in for. True. And it doesn't fulfill that promise. Correct. Or maybe even just a little bit. I mean, Nero Algodone is kind of just going straight too far from it. You know. And, and then it does. And then it does. And you're, and you're like, what is this? Yeah. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I had, well, the first time I watched it, but even, even then it, it kind of colored the way that I saw it in subsequent viewings is the way that Meal Ticket almost feels like a rug pull. Because you have Battle of Buster Scruggs and Near Algodones that are both, I mean, they're... they're yeah, Algodones is, 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 in the, is in the ballpark of Buster Scruggs. Right, You're not it's, yet, it's, closer, is... it's closer to that than it is to the other. It, it, it has the comedic, yes. you know, it, it ends with the death of the main character. But so does Buster Scruggs, yeah. Right, 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 right. But in a still kind of a lighthearted way, and then you go to Meal Ticket, which is the darkest one out of all of them, and it almost right. feels like the rug gets pulled out from under you because you're like, okay, when is the when is the comedy? Like, when is the fun part supposed to happen? And it never does. It's like, oh, that is just a very sad, dark story. Right. It's a gut punch. And you're like, wait, what's happening? Right. Yeah. Right. And then you get the, you know, we talked about the rebound fun of All Gold Canyon. Yeah. But it's not the fun of Buster Scruggs and Nero Algodones. Right. It's a different kind it's of not, fun. It's not actually fun. Right. It's, it's just uplifting. It's, it's more, like you said, it's uplifting. It's not fun. Right. You don't get fun again. Yeah. After the first two. Yeah. And so I think that's why people like my dad are let down, which is just like, oh, well, that's, I wanted more of what you gave me to start with. Right. And I, I don't think that that's bad. Like, I think it actually worked. All the stories do work together. It's just, I think I liked it. I mean, I liked it the first time I watched it, but I think I might have liked it better the second time because I knew what to expect from watching it the first time. Yes, and that's what I would say is it it it, uh, it does get better on overall as a whole. As a whole movie of six sub-stories, it's better on rewatching. So even if you're like, yes, the first time watching Buster Scruggs will never beat the first time watching Buster Scruggs. But as the whole six as a whole, I think it does get better on repeated viewings. Yeah. Okay, yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming next time. 